Maybe you listened on the fourth weekend to this show and some other July 4th Grateful Dead music. And now the weekend's over, it's back to reality, and you're listening to some working man's pod. Well, if that's the case, thank you. We, uh, we're happy that you're with us. We're happy to be talking to you again today. I guess we should say when our next episode after this is going to come out is a bit up in the air. We are going to take a bit of a breather for throughout kind of July and August. We'll be back definitely for the next Dave's Picks, which should come out around the end of July. And we may have maybe a shorter episode in between. Dave and I, as we mentioned in our last one, are going to be going to a Dead & Co. show together in New York City. So we might be back for a shorter one, but our next kind of regularly scheduled programming won't be for a little while. We're going to take a little bit of a break, kind of recharge the batteries. We both have a a bunch of travel coming up, plus work and stuff like that. So yeah, it should give us a nice little breather. Yeah, a little summer hiatus and then back for a lot of content in the fall. Yes, yes, indeed. Today, we're talking about a show from July 1st, 1978 at Arrowhead Stadium, the home of the Kansas City Chiefs. We wanted to do this one because we wanted to do a July 4th show. And this one, we found a few. The Dead didn't play on July 4th very often. I think they only did three times, all in the 80s and early 90s. So we were looking for you know, shows around July 4th. When we were, this one, which was played, again, July 1st, 1978, was played at Willie Nelson's 4th of July picnic, and so it seemed fitting for the holiday, for Independence Day, to do a show that was played at an event meant to honor July 4th. So why not? Why not this show? Before we talk about this show, though, let's talk about the days between. Dave, it's only been a few days since we last spoke, but the last time we talked, we didn't really get into any days between. Anything for you that's that's on your mind from the days between? Why don't you go first? Okay. <laughs> um, so one thing in our last full episode, we released a shorter one about the Dead & Co. show in Cincinnati and kind of just talking about the Dead Co. tour so far this summer. But in the episode before that, we talked about the names, the name of our fans. Yes. And I said that I thought that heads should be involved in some way, Mm -hmm. given that we're deadheads making a show by deadheads for deadheads. And literally like the moment we stopped recording, I was like, well, podheads. Our show's name is two words long. One of them is pod. And podheads is very close to another name that is well known among heads. So Podheads is a kind of natural fit. Now, here's the problem with it. Number one, it's extremely generic. There are a billion pods out there, and there are probably already fan bases that call themselves Podheads. None that I know of. I've yet to come around that, yeah. But So that's one thing from the days between uh, for your consideration, fan base for your consideration, because you're the ones who are going to be you know, known as this amongst yourselves or at least amongst Dave and I. So if you like it, if you dislike it, if you have other ideas, let us know so that we can begin to (laughs) make reference to that. The second thing is I've gone to a lot of concerts in the days between. 
So not only the Dead & Co. show that we talked about, but also a Goose concert in Raleigh, North Carolina, and then more recently a Billy Strings concert in Cary, North Carolina. Both extremely heady crowds. Like, I saw almost as many dead shirts at those two shows as I did at the Dead & Company show. They're just like, you know, the overlap between them is pretty significant, I would say. For my days between... Two very minor things coming from the Uncle Kyle family tree. Uh, The first is that Uncle Kyle's son, Ryan, I mentioned he was on the cross-country bike tour. He has finished. They made it to Virginia Beach, front tires in the water of Virginia Beach, and he is home safe and sound and a little sore, but he's all good. And if you donated or followed his adventures at Three Guys, One Bike, um, I thank you from him. And then the second thing is, uh, by the time this episode comes out, I will be in the barn with Uncle Kyle in New York State and headed to an extra show for me, Dead & Company, in Saratoga on July 6th. Tremendous. So, exciting stuff. That is exciting. So we will have representation then at, like, well, back-to-back nights of shows because I'll be at the Hartford show. Then you'll be at that show on the 6th. And then, and then back to back in New York City, I'll be there myself Friday, and then both of us will be there Saturday. Yeah, with a crew on Saturday. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be awesome. Dave and I will be happy to talk to anyone. I mean, everyone's always kind of happy to talk to everyone at Dead Shows anyway. But in particular, if you want to come and talk to us about our show, we'd love to talk to you. So if you see us there, come say hey. We'd love to, we'd love to chat. So yeah, it's going to be a busy July. So just with like all of that, I mean, you can kind of hear why we're taking a little bit of a breather just to give ourselves time to do this. Cause you know, I mean, this is for fun. And so, you know, want to keep it fun. All right. Well with that, I think we should get on with the show. Thursday, July 1st, 1978 at Arrowhead Stadium. Massive, massive football field. You lived in Kansas City, well, the Kansas City area for a while, and you're wearing a Kansas City shirt right now. Yeah, I'm repping the Kauffman Center Kansas City Skyline t-shirt right now. I have been to Arrowhead, unfortunately not for a Chiefs game, because right when I moved into the Kansas City area, they won the Super Bowl, so tickets crazy expensive. I have done a 5K around Arrowhead Stadium. It's very out of character for me doing a 5K, <laughs> but I can tell you it's very nice from the outside. It looks it. It looks nice on TV too. I know that the fan base is insane there, which is pretty cool. Very loud, supportive fans. I think, speaking of loud, I think it still has the decibel record for loudest like football stadium crowd noise Yes, ever. it does. It does indeed. So this show was on the, as I said, July 1st. It was the kickoff to a short little run in July of 1978. And we'll get into that in a little while. But before we do, let's kind of set the stage, give a little intro. So this is the classic late 70s Grateful Dead lineup. You have Bob and Jerry on the guitars, Phil on bass, both God shows in the band and both drummers, Billy and Mickey. So what's happening in the culture? 
top album, Saturday Night Fever, is still at the top of the charts. This is the same as our very first episode, which was from 1978, from February yeah. 5th. Way back in the winter, right? We're five months later, and it is still at the top of the chart, which is crazy. Hmm. This was its last week. It was unseated the next week by Jerry Rafferty, City to City. That's uh, an album that you you would know two songs on it. Number one, right down the line, I think you would know. Number two... You would definitely know the song Baker Street. It's the song that has that sax that's like, bum, ba, na, 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 na. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that one you'd, you'd definitely recognize. The top Billboard song, relatedly, is Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb, one of the brothers Gibb, a.k.a. the Bee Gees. This is Andy Gibb's second number one single as the, of the year as a solo artist. And his fifth number one single of the year, if you count his music with the Bee Gees, which is just insane to me. Wow. Yeah. Like this band, obviously the Saturday Night Fever album is the Bee Gees. So like they owned the year from an album perspective. And then the, you know, the Grease soundtrack comes out. I don't know if there's a Bee Gees song on it per se, but a lot of that music is Bee Gees-esque. So it's like they're so... They're just so in the foreground of the culture in 1978. They had, like I said, by just this point in the year in July, they had had three different number one singles as a band. Andy Gibbett had two singles that went number one as a solo artist. And in 77, in the end of 77, he had a third solo song that was a number one single. These guys were just crushing it in 1978. And we talked in our last episode about 1978, our very first episode, if you want to go back and listen to it, about the disco influence on the dead around this point in time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it was just prevalent in the culture. July 1st, birthdays. A couple of pretty good ones. Number one, uh, Chicago blues legend Willie Dixon. He's a great artist. He's very relevant to the Grateful Dead because two of his songs, Spoonful and Little Red Rooster, were widely covered by the mm -hmm. dead, both songs that Bobby really liked. Dan Aykroyd, his birthday was July 1st, and he was a member of the Blues Brothers who would open shows for the dead, including later this year, the New Year's show, the closing of Winterland, the Blues Brothers opened for the dead on that night. Later on in more modern music history, Missy Elliott, her birthday is July 1st, and Formula One racer Daniel Ricardo, Danny Rick, his birthday is July 1st. One quite sad death, well, I mean, anyone who died on July 1st is a, a sad death. Right. But but one that's relevant to the Grateful Dead, Wolfman Jack died on July 1st, 1995. So you got, he gets a shout out in Ramble on Rose. So <laughs> is July 1st a holiday? This is like the last section on Wikipedia for any date is like all of the holidays globally that it is. And this just cracked me up. <laughs> Listed as the holiday in the United States, Bobby Bonilla Day is July ah, 1st. Yes, if you're a Mets fan. <laughs> That's yeah. still going on, right? Yep. So if you don't know this story, the New York Mets, dumpster fire of an organization that they are, they agreed to a contract with a slugger of a first baseman named Bobby Bonilla. In 2005, they owed him $5 million, and they agreed to a deal where if he would put it off until 2010, every year on July 1st, they would give him a $1 million until 2035. So they <laughs> went from owing him $5 million to owing him $25 million. <laughs> and Bobby Bonilla had already made enough money. So he was like, yeah, I'll take a check for a million dollars for 25 years and add $20 million to my contract. Twist my arm. Why don't you? 
Right. So Bobby Bonilla still makes a million dollars from the Mets every year. His son, Bobby Bonilla Jr., was in a baseball league that I used to work in. I don't know if he's in the pros now, but he had very high velo right-handed pitcher. So Bobby Bonilla Jr., doubt you're listening to this, but if you are, hope you're doing well. (laughs) Yeah. Enjoy that steak dinner and nice bottle of champagne tonight on July 1st. Absolutely. So 1978 for the Grateful Dead, an interesting, interesting year. So it's a busy year, especially compared to the years prior. They played 82 shows, plus they had a bunch of canceled dates in 78, which is kind of odd. So in context, 76, they played 41 shows. In 75, they only played four because of the hiatus. In 77, they only played 60 shows. And now this year, they're up to 82 shows, including a trip to Egypt in September, which was probably one of the biggest undertakings the the dead ever took on Um, probably up there with Europe 72. They had released Terrapin station the previous year. And then Jerry Garcia released cats under the stars in the spring of 78. And then later this year, shakedown street would come out. They would head to the studio to record that pretty much right after this little tour. So lots of new music in the mix around this time. And lots of live releases from 1978. There have been four Dave's Picks releases, two Dick's Picks releases, the Egypt shows. There was like kind of a best of compilation of that that was released. One Road Trips volume that was released. And their New Year's show at Winterland, the closing of Winterland, has been released as both a CD and a video. But perhaps I buried the lead. This show and this entire run of shows have been released as the July 78 box set, which I own and had kind of forgotten about until we like recorded this. And I was listening to this show on the archive and I was like, man, I wish that there was like a better quality version of this. And then I was looking through my dead CDs and was like, Oh, wait a minute. There is a better quality (laughs) and it's right here. So that's like a kind of a cool story. This July 78 box set, it came out in 2016. These were some of the Betty boards that had been lost to time and then the dead family got their hands back on them in the early 2010s. And so this box set was kind of a cool, rare release where some of these shows, especially this one, had never been circulating among deadheads and tape traders in like a high-quality version because the Betty Boards were never circulated. And so it was kind of the rare thing where it's now, at that point, more than 40 years after the shows had been played, right? And they they hadn't been out. And so I thought that was kind of cool that then it's like a, a special treat for Deadheads that it's a, a high quality recording that they maybe hadn't had before. So that box set is this show. The following night they had a concert planned in Milwaukee that got rained out. So that's not in the box set. July 3rd in um, Omaha, Nebraska, I believe. The 5th in St. Paul, Minnesota. And then the seventh and eighth at Red Rocks. That's the the box set. Really good box set with great packaging and stuff like that. And um, in the packaging, there's this pretty substantial. I'm showing I'm showing Dave right now how thick it is. Like book of liner notes. I don't know who wrote these liner notes. It doesn't say. It might be David Lemieux because there's no one else really credited at the back of it for the production value like the production credit of this box set but it's really cool it, it goes through like 
what was happening in the culture in 78 as far as deadheads were concerned. And it talks a lot about how punk music was really taking off in 78 and how for like punk heads, the dead were antithetical to what they're, what they were looking for in the punk scene. And so there's a, there was a note in here about how some like punk mag, they voted the dead, like the least punk act out there. It was like the dead and Mick Jagger were tied as like most offensive old waiver <laughs> because punk, when it was first coming out, it was like punk slash new wave is what people were calling it. Mm-hmm. And, and so yeah, punk people did not like the dead <laughs> apparently. <laughs> and so there are all these New York heads that were like, oh, I don't want to go to CBGB. I, I don't like punk music. I want to hear the grateful dead. And then all these, you know, punk people are like, fuck that, man. I want to listen to, you know, punk. I don't want to listen to this old timer bullshit. (laughs) So there's like that transition happening in the culture, kind of like the subversive, cool, interesting new thing 10 years ago when the dead were doing it in 1968 was their music and the hippie music and free love and stuff like that. Well, now we're a decade later and culture had moved past that a little bit. And instead it was like punk was the new subversive interesting strange artistic expression that you know new musicians were going to so that's kind of interesting to me then the other thing that they talked about a lot in these liner notes was terrapin and cats under the stars did not do very well critically and there's a quote from dennis mcnally that said that the dead had by 78 quote critically sunk below the waterline end quote so he was basically saying like critics are kind of out on the dead in 78 and their concert presence is still growing. They're still getting to bigger and bigger venues as a live act, but they had gotten into this period where through 77, there was maybe still some admiration and affection within the critical view of the Grateful Dead. And by 78, it had turned and it was like, now nah, we're really not about this anymore. And so I thought that was quite interesting because then yeah. that would that would last for like another decade really. And then, you know, all that was cool will be again someday. Mm -hmm. And by the late eighties touch of gray comes out, they are number one or, you know, at the top, maybe not number one, but up at the top of the billboard charts. And now there's all this belated affection for the dead of like, what the, these guys are still out there doing it. This is crazy. (laughs) This is amazing. And so then like, that's when then MTV starts to go back to the dead. And now they're this like kind of cool old band that's like still doing it the same way they always were. And so the public sentiment shifted again, but we're getting into a period of time where the deadheads love this band just as much as they always did. They're drawing as big, if not bigger concerts like than they were in 77 and 76, but culturally and in like, you know, the pop culture view, it had faded a little bit. So thank you to the liner notes for expressing all of that and helping, you know, us to realize kind of the backdrop of this because it's especially fitting for the show that we're talking about, which is like I said, at Willie Nelson's July 4th party where they're not playing for an audience of deadheads. They're playing for Willie Nelson people, like people who are going out there to see Willie Nelson and Will and Jennings and then all of a sudden there's a dead set that includes drums in space <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon at Arrowhead Stadium. It's like a that that must have been such a rarity for them to be playing not in front of like a quote unquote home crowd at this point. And so I think that that's something that makes this show extremely interesting and, mm-hmm. and worthy of discussion. 
so that's kind of the background landscape of the year. This tour, very short run. You go, um, I think I flipped this, but it's Kansas City to St. Paul to Omaha, two nights at Red Rocks, and then six weeks off to record Shakedown Street. They didn't play again until two more shows at Red Rocks in August, then one show at Giant Stadium on um, on September 2nd, coincidentally enough, with Willie Nelson opening for them, and then off to Egypt. Okay, so the venue and the show that we're going to be talking about. The venue, Arrowhead Stadium, Dave has run a 5k there as he said i have seen it from a distance but i've never walked around the grounds it is a big gigantic football stadium constructed between 1968 and 1972 alongside the royals kaufman stadium constructed at the same time they are right next to each other as a lot of modern day sports centers are like in philadelphia you know you get the baseball stadium right next to the football field and in that case, also the basketball slash hockey arena. So here you've got Kauffman Stadium, a really nice baseball field, and then Arrowhead right next to it. Arrowhead was originally built with artificial turf as the field surface, and that was still the case for this show, which would have made it extremely hot on a summer day, the heat just radiating off that turf. But that was replaced in 1993 with, with a grass surface. This venue really does not have a storied history at all um, as far as being a concert venue. It today basically hosts huge country shows like Kenny Chesney and an occasional Rolling Stones show like once every three years. Otherwise, it's, it's not hosting live music anymore. So it's kind of rare that there was this event there. Anything else on Arrowhead? The only thing to add, you touched on it. Some of the like, comments and forms about this show you touched on the heat coming off a of turf apparently this was not a pleasant day at arrowhead and one of the comments i read was like my brother had a heat stroke and had to go to the hospital during set one but this was a great show man <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i truly can't imagine okay so the show itself so this as i said willie nelson's fourth of july picnic this was the sixth year of its existence and it's still going on today the fourth of july picnic it started in 1972 in a small town in Texas and then was performed in Texas for the next, that year and all of the first five. That fifth year was like an extremely bad scene. I read on Wikipedia that there were like over a hundred incidents, like independent incidences of violence that occurred at that show, like assaults, batteries. There were multiple sex crimes that were alleged to have happened at the show. Bad scenes. And so Texas basically said, no more, Willie, you're not doing this. So he moved it out to Tulsa in 77, out of state. And then in 78, to this Kansas City, to the Arrowhead venue. So two nights later, at be- the night before the 4th of July, he had a more intimate 4th of July party back in Texas, but it was not well publicized. It wasn't for fans. It was like for friends and family sort of a thing. So this one, his publicity team was like, it's three days before for the 4th at Arrowhead. Let's make this one the 4th of July picnic. So you had Missouri opening, then the Grateful Dead going on, then Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter, his wife at the time, they performed, and then Willie was the headliner. Kind of coincidentally, The Dead, I'm saying that like in quotes, The Dead, in 2003 also played at the picnic. So that was... The Dead, I believe, was the the band. The, the construction was Bruce Hornsby, Phil, Bobby, Joe Russo 
on the drums. No, he was in further. So it would have been Billy and Mickey, I think. But kind of like pre-Dead & Co. with Phil still involved was the dead. So they played there in 2003. And I thought this was interesting. In an interview with the Austin Chronicle, they asked Phil when he met Willie. And he was like, yeah, two years ago. And it's like, no, many, many years before that, Phil. So either they didn't meet at this venue, which is highly possible. Possible, yeah. Or it was just kind of forgotten in the span of time. They had played so many shows that it's like, well, okay, he opened for us at Giant Stadium a month after and we played for him at this thing, but we didn't really cross paths. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You had the Hells Angels working security at this event. Um, and the dead, again, strangely for this time period, were not the headliner. They weren't even the second build act. They were third on the on the docket. So um, interesting. And that actually led to some stress because the the band's trucks didn't get into town until 12 hours before the show was meant to start. And so they were considerably late to the venue to get set up. They had an hour to break down the stage after their show, I guess, um, which apparently was a uh, caused time problems. They also played for 45 minutes longer than they were supposed to, which apparently set the timing back on everything else. <laughs> so uh, there's that. There's a quote from these liner notes that says that one reporter called the dead and Willie a seemingly bizarre pairing. But another said, quote, like Nelson, the dead have always tried to stay in touch with their audience and the legions of deadheads are still growing. Nelson's audience, which is also a good cross section of Americana, is just as religious in their fervor, end quote. So the Willie Nelson heads were apparently just as rabid. They were just as excited to go see Willie. And um, I think that the dead played a good set list for this audience. Uh, Willie Nelson is a fan of the Grateful Dead's music. He's covered Stella Blue on an album in 2006, which is a very nice rendition. And he had some very, really kind of nice quotes about the dead after that show in 2003 and talking about some of their songs that he really likes. So, the set list. They open. So, I guess this is one note to say about the set list. So, this CD, the CD version of this recording, they take out like all of the tuning breaks between the songs. Apparently, the guys' guitars kept coming out of tune. That was like a note in the liner notes was that it was a tough day for the guitars. So, they took out all of the KC heat. Yeah. Kept getting funky with them. Yeah. That's probably right. So, the CD is an hour and 57 minutes long. That's quite a long set for a festival act and to be like the third build and to play for two hours is pretty impressive. It's not a traditional Grateful Dead show in that it's just one set. They just did one big old set, no set break. But again, they do drums and space in this set, which I just, the audacity of that, I appreciate so much. So we'll get to drums and space in due time, but the show starts with Bertha. Bertha, I mean, a classic show opener. It's a sh- it's a song that you and I have both talked about 
in the past enjoying as a show opener. I like the way that it gets things started. And I like the way that it gets this show in particular started. I feel like this is a song that the Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings people would probably like. And I feel that way about, honestly, almost every song on this set list. I agree with you. It's It's got that fun, bubbly energy. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's right. This They know and they're not catering, but entertaining this crowd of people. Yeah, cater, you're right. It's not that they're catering to this crowd or like trying to pander to them. No, again, they did a drums in space. Like, yeah, exactly. They're not, but... <laughs> exactly. But at the same time, it's a lot of their like more country-ish or bluegrass, you know, inspired or bluesy songs rather than like a massive dark star, you know, or like, I don't know, dancing in the street. They don't go into that. So it's it's more within the realm of music that these folks probably would appreciate. And they get a pretty good response from the crowd. Like there are a few moments in this show and a few songs that get really big applauses. So I think that the fans were digging them. I, and it's something that I read in a lot of the reviews of this was like people who were saying basically, it was cool how much they won over the crowd. And there were some people who were still dubious coming in and they were dubious coming out, but there were also a lot of people who really enjoyed themselves. So I think that's cool and a testament to how good the band was at this point in time. We're, we're kind of circling around it, but former guest star of the show, Howard Weiner has, has hit the nail on the head of like what this class of songs, I think is that old weird America genre of the dead. And I think that that's what we're, that's what we're both referring to. Yes, you're exactly right. And Howard's exactly right. So Bertha is in in that category, I would say, for sure. Mm -hmm. And this is a good version. This, like pretty much every song in this show is a fast version. They are up-tempo, like (laughs) really (laughs) up-tempo. Yes. So talk about that more later, but (laughs) yes. Yeah, so this version, some of the things that stood out to me, Phil is just bombs away the first third of the song. Like he is really getting after it. Phil sounds great. This, this show, I mean, not that that's shocking to anyone, but he's, he's great. And Jerry's solo is a bit longer than usual. It's bridged by some really nice, like waterfall keys by Keith is how I describe them. And Keith, I think that there is maybe a little bit of an issue with how he was being recorded during the show because he like his sound disappears entirely for some some songs in this show, but you can really hear him on Bertha and he sounds good. So I thought it was a good way to start the show, and um, yeah, Jerry solo being a bit longer was I appreciated it a lot. He's really feeling good this show because he has some really long, really great work on the guitar. He does, and with the comment about that tempo official pod head dr zach cropper is someone who says that he likes his berthas to quote drive instead of bounce and i think with how jerry is pushing the solo and uh how the drumming is in this song too i think dr cropper would really like this version yes shout out to zach i bet you're right i bet he would this is the number 83 version of bertha on heady version out of 292 ranked versions, which puts it at about the 29% number. I want you to remember that number, 29. (laughs) Okay, 
I can't, that I can do. I can remember 29. That probably is about right for me. I think it's in the upper half. I certainly don't think it's a bad version of Bertha. It's just noticeably fast. I would say it would be like the main, my main takeaway. From Bertha, they take the jam into a nice version of Good Lovin'. Phil really leads the transition. And then I think just absolutely steals the show throughout this song. Phil's mm-hmm. bass is very forceful. It's loud in the mix, which is cool. You can really hear it. And it is just like, it's just bumping. Um, I also really like the chaotic vocal arrangement during the rap at the end. Like that, that is kind of something that they'll go back to later in this show. But like Bob and Donna, especially, it's just pretty chaotic and mm-hmm. it, this it suits this song. I like that quite a bit. I thought it was spirited and energetic. Yeah, I thought Phil sounded great. I thought the cowbell sounded good too. Yeah, it did. I also like at the end when Bob says, Welcome to the rock and roll barbecue. <laughs> because <laughs> there's a chance that Bob thinks that this event is actually called like Willie Nelson's rock and roll barbecue, which I love the idea of. <laughs> Or he just does not care and just like he says that because it makes him laugh, which I love just as much. But my, my guess to, is that one. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but welcome to the rock and roll barbecue. I love that. So we're back to old weird America now with Tennessee Jed. Mm-hmm. This is a nine minute long Tennessee Jed. And what do you think about it? I thought it was pretty good. I really liked how the bass and the piano worked together kind of throughout the whole song, but really in the like walk up to the second chorus, so kind of the middle third of the song. Just thought that the those two really really worked together well. And then I thought that the like lower octave solo work from Jerry, like not shredding way up on the neck of the guitar, but kind of keeping it low sounded really cool and then when bob went onto the slide jerry kind of went back to the more traditional jed blues solo but i thought that that tonal shift in like the first half of his guitar solo was really noteworthy and and really interesting what about you jed obviously not my favorite song i thought it was fine i think that they kind of lose the song a little bit for a few seconds around the three minute mark but then they get it back pretty quickly it's a very very small moment of like just like a momentary flub and I maybe you even have to be listening closely to notice it just kind of fall off for a second like the just the connectedness between all of them but the lead up to that like the first three minutes of the song I thought was really strong I really enjoyed that part and Phil yeah I mean he is just like grooving throughout the song and his interplay with different people at different times is notable to me like you were saying, him and Keith, they sound great together. And then he and Bobby are doing some kind of cool stuff together. I think it's before Bob switches to the slide. Um, unless, maybe he had the slide this whole song, but it was more in the early part of the song that when I was listening to Phil and Bobby and just kind of enjoying their work together. It's number 29, Jed, on Heady Version. Wow, okay. 29 again again another old weird america song actually pretty much three in a row after jed the first one is jack straw and my first note is whoa dot 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 
I think that that's a fair note for this version. By the I think four that minute, sums it up pretty well, yeah. actually. By like the four minute mark of this song, they take it to a place that few Jack Straws go. It is just like an absolute heater at that point. It's, it's hot and it's quick. It's up tempo, but the drummers kick it hot early. Jerry's first solo is excellent. But then we roar into a second solo that's even hotter. Like Phil's pushing the gas pedal down and Jerry answers the call. And at about the 4.30 mark, I feel like Jerry's strumming like a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> but Phil is like punching it right back. I mean, they, they truly went full send. Everyone too, because like Donna has some snarl in her vocals on this song, and that become that's like the case really throughout this show. Especially her and Bobby both, they have like some of that like uh, some of that same energy that you get from Bobby on some good Minglewoods. He's got that extra bit of nastiness in his tone, that his guttural his roar. Yeah, yeah, like that. They were both doing that. Yeah, and especially toward the end of the song, it sounds great. Uh, the lyric leaving Texas fourth day of July gets a, a big applause, rightly so. So yeah, really g- good version of Jack Straw. I enjoyed it a lot. I really enjoyed it. I was really high on this. And so were the masses. This is the number 29 version of Jack Straw and Heady version. Wow. All right. Hold on. I want to see how many Jack Straws they played compared to compared to how many Jeds. I can tell you how many ranked versions of Jack Straw there are. They played 478 versions. How many many ranked are there? 368. Wow. Okay. So that's going to make this even higher of a percentage. And Tennessee. What did you say? 478? Yeah. In Tennessee Judd, they played 437 times. Okay. So that put this in 6% territory of Straw. And then, sorry, what? What number, Jed? 437, so top 10% of that as well. Yeah, 6.6%. Man. They're both really good versions. I mean, I get that. The the Jed, especially the first half, I think is very, very good. The Jack Straw, the whole version, I think is great. Yeah, I was I was really high on this Jack Straw. From here they play uh, Friend of the Devil. Is this the first time we talked about this on the program? I don't believe so. I think that it was in the 77 show that we talked about. But I'm not certain now that you say that. No. We talked about it in our very first episode. Oh, did we? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I've, I've, the reason why I'm pretty sure we've talked about it is because I've talked about my issue with the slower tempo that they played after the hiatus. I have in my notes, like, let Tex talk about his frustration with this song post-hiatus. <laughs> so I was going to let you do that. But if we've already talked about it, then we don't need to. Well, I mean, basically, that. that that's the whole point. Like, they 
this song on the record cut is like a fast, bouncy, bluegrassy song that I really, really love. And then this slower arrangement, I just am not crazy about, or I'm not as crazy about, but I do think that this is a really good version and they, they pick up the tempo quite a bit by the end of this song. This is like the first remotely slow song of the set as well. They've played four very quick to pretty quick songs like the first four and so they slow it down a little bit give themselves a little bit of a rest but then the mid-song jam takes it to a much higher tempo there's a really nice solo by jerry and some really like forceful rhythm coming from both bob and billy is like super active what he's doing on the drums as far as like slower tempo versions go i actually like this one quite a bit and the crowd definitely did too because there's a huge applause at the end of this song yeah and i think a lot of that had to do with keith too keith had an excellent long but excellent uh piano solo in here and then i thought that bob on the rhythm and and donna kind of really helped vault this friend of the devil into a a top version that is where it's starting to get weird. This is the number 29 version of Friend of the Devil on Heady version. What the hell? <laughs> that is so bizarre. Okay, so next up is the 29th ranked version of Me and My Uncle, I'm assuming, <laughs> based on the last few songs. <laughs> You're close. It's the 46th ranked version. This one broke the streak. But <laughs> okay. Yeah, go into a Me and My Uncle that wasn't really a... a cowboy song it was a swing boogie tune disco version of me and my uncle yeah for this brief window of time they were playing it this way and then they kind of by 79 they're back to the way that they had played it before but you're right the 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 swingy rhythm that they're playing it with is different and it's short it's less than three minutes long but i mean jerry's playing his ass off the whole time really nice solo around the 120 mark and um, at the beginning, Phil is just like, Bob counts us in and Phil just drops an, an atom bomb. <laughs> just like that, his opening bass note. Is just long and deep. <laughs> Anything else on this short, short and snappy, me and my uncle? Just... Keith kind of reinforced the disco theme with his jazzy keys. They they go right from the end. They do like a dr- direct transition into Big River. And I thought that that was a little bit weird, like the Bob Cowboy song directly transitioning into another Bob Cowboy song. I thought that that was kind of strange. Yeah, I wonder if they ever... Hold on, let, let me take a quick look. Me and my uncle into Big River... Um, 176 times. I guess not as weird as I thought. Yeah. They played Big River 400 times as a band and they transitioned in for me and my uncle 176 of those times. So Basically a third? 
Yeah. Almost half. So they, they kind of yeah. got into that rhythm of me and my uncle into big river actually right around this time. So in mm. early 78 in April of 78, that's when they started to do this. That's when it happened for the first time. And then the next man, so many until 1983, they big river. They let in with uh, mama tried one time and all of the other performances had me and my uncle before it. Wow. And then even after that, it's like either me and my uncle or mama tried or an, a random Mexicali blues dire wolf, but it's, pretty much those two songs that's interesting i actually i never recognized that until right now that that was the case um from the late late 70s onward in the early 70s it's not the case at all Mm-mm. there was no like natural predecessor of big river it was pretty unpredictable when it might show up even between sets like in uh 74 there are a lot of second set big rivers whereas it's you know a lot of times a first set song but that's interesting. That's an interesting thing for us to learn. That's how it was on Dave's Picks 42. Big River is a... Well, actually, both Big River and Me and My Uncle are set two songs, but Big River they play first. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, we're at that that time in their their work where this is how they're doing it. Yep. And it's quick. It happens quick. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. What did you think about this Big River? I mean, besides it being pretty quick and zippy. I thought... I thought it sounded pretty good. Jerry had just a, a yet another monster solo at the end. There was that like sugary esque strumming with the like harmonic tone, like yeah. super super fast. And I thought that the key solo made it sound pretty good. What about you? Yeah, I liked it. I liked the pace that the or not the pace the well yes the pace, but also the rhythm that the drummers were keeping. It was like a one and a two and a three and a four kind of thing. Like they were really filling up the space with their drumming and playing it quickly and just forcefully. Yeah, I think I think we should take this moment just to say, like we talked a couple times how it's happening quick. The drumming is really impressive. Yeah. Like it's fast but good for basically every song. Yes, and there's a lot of precision because they're doing a lot of things together that sound great and yeah you're you're absolutely right they definitely deserve a big shout out because they couldn't play this fast without drummers who were capable steady hands back there um and especially with two drummers it's very impressive and uh, speaking of this next song terrapin station i think is probably one of the most impressive showings from the drummers in this entire show in the beginning of this song i can feel their kick drums in my chest it's like oh my god these guys are like killing it right now and and it feels good we haven't it, talked about terrapin in a while so it, it feels good to be talking about that again it's true this is a, a pretty tight little version of terrapin i guess they only had so much time to be playing on this afternoon evening in grateful dead history but i like this version i thought that the drumming was tremendously good throughout the song i liked a lot of the kind of like the kind of like accompanying stuff that Mickey was doing, which makes sense because he was one of the main composers of this song. So he had a, a heavy hand uh-huh. in creating it. And so it makes sense that he would have a really natural feel for what it should sound like or what he wanted it to sound like at least. Yeah. And in like the, the Terrapin chorus section much later 
toward the end of the song, I I noted I really liked the Tom Ford drumming, and I, I think yes. that that's Mickey. Yeah. So to to that point, yeah, absolutely. I think so too. I think that Billy is doing more of the snare and cymbal crash stuff at that, and Mickey is keeping the heavy hand on the toms and just keeping that bass drum kicking too the whole time. Sounds great. Jerry also sounds fantastic. He's, you know, typically great playing from him on a Terrapin station as he always is. And how about a shout out to Donna? Her supporting vocals are great on this version. They are. Yeah. Back to Jerry real quick. He was doing like improv fills the entire four minute mark that I thought were really fun and exciting. Yeah. He was pretty unpredictable in this show. There's a lot of stuff in this show where I was like, Ooh, this sounds new, but I really liked Near the end, around the 9.30 mark, I I can't, weirdly, I can't tell if it's Bob or Keith. I can't tell if it's like a low guitar effect or a weird low on the piano effect. But there's some like low, low tone that one of them is using that got like a dark, trippy element added to the mix. And I thought that that was really neat too. That but, is cool. This is... We're about to dive into something good here. Yeah. I mean, both of these songs are really good. Terrapin, I had a hard time kind of distinguishing between Keith and anyone else too. I think that he was pretty low. Well, I mean, it would be different for an audience recording, but at least on the Betty board, he's mixed pretty low, strangely. And um, it's kind of hard to hear him. On on playing, it's even harder. I don't even, I literally couldn't even hear Keith on this song, which is fine because everyone else is playing so well. I didn't feel like I was, you know, like missing out, but I did notice that I was missing him. It's like, man, I can't even hear this guy. Everyone else, though, is great. I love this pairing, Terrapin into Plan, and I love mm-hmm. Phil, what he's doing around the transition. Just a, a great transition in to a really good version of Plan. And a really breakneck, fast version, but I liked it. I think that that really worked for Plan. I thought it was cooking in the summer heat. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. It almost brought me back to... Um, well, I mean, it's different than the Europe 72 versions because they weren't, those were not played at this tempo generally. But just like as far as like from a raw energy perspective, those versions are so energetic and just like oozing with spirit. And this one kind of had a similar effect on me, I guess I would say. Yeah, I think it's because of the energy and the tempo. I know what you mean though. Those were like 10 minute plans that were like 10 minute spacey plans. When we say that this was quick, this was like a 16-minute play-in that occurred over nine minutes. It's like you set the, it's like you set the speed of the audio at like two times play, because um, they're just, they were, they were tripping quickly, and it's like the most upbeat, spacey trip that I've heard in a long time. Um, yeah, but that's not a bad thing. That was Mm-mm. good, and especially good because of Jerry, just going crazy yeah 
So <laughs> they played this transition Terrapin into playing in the band 58 times. They started doing it in 78. They did it a lot. 70, sorry. They started doing it in 77. They did it a lot between 77, eight, nine into the early eighties. And then they kind of shelved it that mid the entire mid song jam is entirely driven by Jerry's playing. He's so good. He's so on it. And the drummers are continuing to push the pace during that. I mean, it's just a really interesting jam in the middle of this song. What you just, the way that you just described it, a 16 minute version trapped in a 10 minute time frame is perfect because like Phil does like 25 different things in that middle song jam. And I mean that in a good way. He's just all over the place. If you listen to him 20 seconds before what he's doing the next 20 seconds later, it sounds completely different. And Keith's sound starts to come back for in at least the version I was listening to, the recording I was listening to, um, toward the end of that jam. But it's just Jerry kind of running the show. And I think it's a sign of things to come as well. Because as good as I think this version of playing in the band is, I think that the real highlight of this show is yet to come. Yeah, I agree with you. But in speaking of highlights, I think this was Donna's vocal highlight of the show was here and more specifically here in the like second verse in the two-ish minute territory thought she just she sounded awesome yeah good show for her i mean a good era it's the, it's the yeah post hiatus yeah. she sounded much better than pre-hiatus um in the in the late 70s so yeah she she did sound good all right now we're into drums and space after playing so you get terrapin into playing into drums into space again i just love how audacious they were to to play (laughs) drums in space in this show and it's not a short drums it's like what seven or eight minutes long yeah like nine minutes no sorry it's 13 minutes but nine of it is drums yeah so like they went for it and this is right around the time that billy and mickey were starting to hone that drum duet so this is just a few months before Francis Ford Coppola heard them doing it and got them involved in the Apocalypse Now soundtrack. You know, they would transition it to becoming something even bigger and grander in the 80s. But this is the beginning of it in in a really notable and noteworthy way. And I mean, I really enjoyed it. I don't have a ton of notes beyond just I was kind of smiling the whole time thinking about how like the dead audience was probably really digging it. And the rest of the audience was like, what the hell am I listening to right now? And then the space is even wilder. Phil's gibberish chanting in the middle is so absurd. (laughs) And I mean that in a great way. I really liked it. At the end of the space, Bob really starts building toward estimated. And um, then everyone else picks it up. and, And they're off into estimated profit. What did you think about the space or the drums in space? altogether with space i totally agree on on the phil chanting and thought jerry's spooky tone was pretty trippy and then he starts to get that familiar tone and we transition out of space into estimated profit and my god yeah at this point we're just off to the races yep i think that the from estimated to the end of the show is about 35 minutes so it's like a third of the total oh a little bit less than a third of the total playing and i think that if you hold this 35 minutes up to other 35 minute segments of grateful dead music in like this year even the year before 
it's just as good and better than a lot. And I think that's because of this estimated profit. It's really like good. most notably. Yeah. Early on, the drumming is great. They're still hot from drums. They're they're warm. They're red hot. Yeah. Phil's bass. That's just oh yeah. It was it was sounding so good. I could hear Keith again. Like I the he's last back. couple songs. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. really there, and now he's back. It all just boiled into this like cosmic gumbo yeah there's there's screaming there's punishing drums there's keith pounding his piano and there's jerry scorching and they just combined to this this tiger moment you know right after the three minute mark for about a minute and a half and it's just outstanding And that's part one of the song. Yes. So that that same moment I wrote down like 335 to 450. It's just triumphant playing. And Jerry is killing it and everyone sounds great. And you're right. That's just the first half. Because then they come back into the third verse of the song. And the whole band sounds great. Jerry's guitar is just kind of like lurking. Like the mental image I had of it is like if you, you know the movie The Jungle Book? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Sheer Khan, that cool ass tiger, that's yeah. the bad guy. There are all these scenes where he's like just like lurking in the tall grass, and you can see like maybe his tail wiggling above. That's what I feel like Jerry's guitar is doing during that part of the song. It's back there, you know it's there, but it's not really it's, coming into the foreground yet. Not yet, but when it does, yes. Post outro around like six forty-five, Jerry lets go like a minutes long Indian bead string, as we like to say of notes above some like really funky groovy drums and funky's not right but just like fun and groovy drums and then some really persistent rhythm from bob phil and keith all of them are just like they're stable and they're they're playing really well but jerry's just taking off for like the last few minutes of this song and it's it's just fantastic yeah the song just kept getting better and better and yeah, Jerry's just putting on a clinic. Yeah. Is where is this uh, appreciated by the masses? Do you want to guess what number? I mean, 29, ranked? obviously. Yeah. This is the number 29 estimated profit on Heady version. Oh my God. And other, putting aside just the fact that now this is the fourth song that's number 29. Don't you think that's a little too low? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Um, and especially in the context of what surrounds it, because the playing that I was, so when I was spoiler alert, thinking about which song I want on my playlist, I was thinking about this one and then I was like, but damn, I would really like the other one that comes next too, because there's a bridge between what Jerry is doing on this song and what he's doing on the other one, where like the first few minutes of that song, he's just continuing on with that Indian bead string. It's like seven minutes long of him just crushing it between these two songs. Yeah. And so it's just like, man, is it good? Like if you, if you're still listening to us and you have not listened to this show and you find yourself in a space where you only have like 16 minutes to listen to music, 
Listen to the estimated into the other one. It is so freaking good. And this is another one, Dave, where you've got a Bob song into a Bob song. You were mentioning it earlier. Same thing here. You got as estimated right into the other one. And it sounds to me like Phil's the one who drives that transition. Um, it, it seems to me like his baseline with like 15 seconds, maybe maybe more, maybe a little bit less, but around the 15 seconds to go mark and estimated, his baseline starts to bring us into the other one. And then everyone picks it up pretty quickly. And Jerry, he's still soaring on his soloing. He doesn't miss a beat. But then by the time he like finally slows down for Bob to do his singing on the other one, it's been like, like I said, like six, seven minutes of just continuous shredding um, between estimated and now the other one. Yeah, his Jerry's fingers are just spitting flames. <laughs> and it's 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 a quick, fast, intense, speedy other one. I mean, I, I, you get out of breath listening to this song because it's moving so quick. It's a tight five. It's a this is a the Usain Bolt of other ones. It's <laughs> super fast and it's over pretty quick. Yeah, and, we're we're in and out. You're right. Right. And they're not done doing fantastic transitions either because they're about to roll right into Warfrat beautifully. Like they don't slam on the brakes to to go into the slow, beautiful ballad of Warfrat. They find a way to get this crazy, intense, quick other one to end and taper into Warfrat. That was just impressive. It really is. They Because Warfrat is like, by nature a slower song but you're right it's like this very natural way that they've melded it together so the before we move on into that song they played the other one over 650 times and only eight times was it preceded by estimated it was all between 78 and 80 that they did that um, and usually it went estimated other one drums when they did that so this is a, kind of a standout version that it would be after drums in space that they go into this but sounded really good like you said very tight version of the other one i also want to shout out donna's vocals one more time because they sound really good on the other one and then Warfrat, you get that change of energy but it sounds fantastic this was another song where i feel like the singing was great jerry sounds really good donna and bob sound really good in some support vocals and um so that part in the beginning that you were just mentioning when they kind of like mend their way, mold their way into Warfrat, one thing that stood out to me was the drummers are giving it so much space in that beginning part. You know, after they make that transition and they get into like the slower tempo of Warfrat, the drummers do a really good job of giving it a lot of space for like the first four-ish minutes. Um, and then the I'll get up and fly away part, they transition into a more up-tempo beat that really suits the song and just really works quite well. But there was one part on this song. I wrote it down as 530-ish, at least on the CD version, where Billy has a really nice drum roll, then Mickey does a really nice drum roll, and then they do it like together right afterward. It's only 10 seconds, very, very short and subtle. But to me, that was just like yet another moment of this show where I was like, God, these guys are locked in right now. They're so with each other that it's like a call and response and then now we'll do it together sort of thing that just sounded so cool to me. Sure 
So I loved this Warfrat. I thought it was great and a really great continuation of what has just been two great songs and just keeping that right on going into into another one. That timestamp that you just noted is interesting. For me, I feel like the first 5.30 or 6 minutes of the song, compared to what we like, we were just doing with those super fast songs, this felt to me kind of like we were taxiing on the runway. Mm. Like we were in motion, but we weren't going full speed yet. And then Jerry just started this avalanche of an outro solo that like, cascaded and built up into this mega jam and maybe that started with that point with the drumming um so i thought it was interesting you noted that time yeah and that mega jam at the end they come out of it with a an upbeat tempo kind of like a crunchy rock ending with the distortion on the guitar which i think changed Mm mid-song and then with the drumming going on there it shifted from a ballad into just a mega jam which then suits the next song really well because you've got this mega jam at the end and then you go right into a rocking version of around and around i am on record a lot of the chuck berry covers are like hit or miss for me a lot of the time and also sometimes like they're they played them so often that sometimes you see it on a set list and you're like oh, okay i get it especially in a, a set list like this one where they go around and around then johnny be good to end the show back to back berry covers yeah yeah but i really really like this version mostly because of the first minute they still have a lot of that like kind of ambient raw energy from the mega jam that you're talking about and it just continues on through the first minute of the song, like building toward the first refrain, starting around the 45 second mark. They just like, it's just great. They, the drummers are like kind of restrained in the beginning, but sounds super powerful. Keith is so steady on the keys, which sounds fantastic. And with Phil, who's, you know, dropping some bombs here and there, but also just sounding generally good throughout the song. Mm -hmm. And then Jerry picks up a really nice groove um, that, I think sounds good and Bob is just kind of accenting it nicely. So um, overall I thought that this was a, like I said, quite a good version and one that the crowd seemed to really dig. It sounded like they really got up for it. Yeah. That's what it did sound like to be honest with you in the first solo and the first part of the song, Jerry sounded a little worn out, which is totally excusable. (laughs) But then when they go back to the like, coked up tempo in the second half of the song <laughs> jerry's like back in it and doing great stuff like 253 minutes ish yeah ish yeah. yeah um i thought bob had some good stank to borrow one of your terms um they oh yeah, there's they some a, stank <laughs> <laughs> yeah they did a cool job of and then after all that they did a cool job of slowing it back down to then build it back up for the big ending I agree with you. I'm not like the biggest fan of this song, but this version I thought was was really cooking and really good. The masses don't agree. This is number 92 on Heady version. This is like out of the top half of ranked versions. Um, wow. And I, I feel like that is criminally low. Especially in the this segment of music. Like I was saying earlier, this like last 35 minutes of this show I think is just so great. So I think in context, it's uh, even more enjoyable. I'm going to have to go upvote this one after we get done recording this. Um, Donna and Bob are both scream like this. 
I've heard Bob describe Sugar Magnolia as like his entree into becoming the band's designated screaming rocker. Talk about like a screaming rocker of a song. He and Donna are just like shrieking at the end of the song. Yeah. <laughs> That's where it gets real stanky is when they are like both screaming, bringing the energy all the way up uh, for wrote, the end of the show. I wrote Donna does her best Dave Grohl impression. <laughs> That's what it was. She was, she was giving Bob everything right back um, with great. some screaming rock. And it didn't a, sound bad. No. Here's a great uh, working man's pod conspiracy theory. Dave Grohl is really just imitating Donnie Jean Godshow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they're both rock and roll Hall of Famers. That's okay. Yeah. They're, yeah. You know, they're both in that uh, fraternity. All right, last song of the night, Johnny Be Good. So the around and around was the conclusion of the um, long streak of songs going into one another. It began with Terrapin, Terrapin, Plan, Drums, Space, Estimated, Other One, Wharf Rat, and Around and Around. Then they take a big break, not a big break, but an applause break. And then they come back in with Johnny Be Good. I don't have a ton of notes on this. I, another song that's like, just, it's not my favorite. I understand the purpose that it serves in Setlist. I bet it would have been awesome to hear live, especially in this context. And I thought this was a a fine version. I think that Keith, around like the 245 mark, he plays some of the best piano that he's played the whole afternoon. sounds really good and brings a lot to the table on this version and i liked it so i thought this was a good way to end the show uh to end the rock and roll barbecue so yeah i'm down for it my notes are identical it was upbeat and rocking but i think it kind of paled in comparison to the more upbeat more rocking chuck berry cover right before it um yes interesting choice to go back to back with those exactly that's the danger of it is Mm -hmm. it's like comparison is the thief of joy and it's a natural comparison to be like well you just played a chuck berry song and that one was better and on top of that at the back half of around and around jerry's playing a lot of johnny b good sounding guitar licks and so it like and they were over time right like of this (laughs) so so why you could have i mean more grateful dead music is always better But you're so, so I'm not right, complaining, though. Complaining, but like, if there was one song to cut from here, it's probably Johnny Be Good. Yeah, that's probably true. Okay, well, that's the show. So, if there's one song to cut, I think we both agree that it's Johnny Be Good. If there's one song to keep on our imaginary playlists, let's do this one together. So, what was your? Let's talk through our analysis. What were you thinking when you were thinking about your song to pick? I had it between three options, and then on a re-listen to the show, it was really only between two options. So my initially, I thought it was between Jack Straw, the super quick playing in the band, and the the estimated. Uh-huh. And then on a re-listen, it, the Jack Straw actually stood out a little more. The playing mm-hmm. stood out a little less. So now we're between Jack Straw and the estimated. But interesting. I mean, just the fact that there are like two distinct moments in the estimated that just took my breath away like 
not like this back-to-back ones at the you know for example ones at the seven minute mark ones at the 720 it was like ones between three and four minutes in the song and ones between like the nine and ten minute you know pillars like two distinct pillars of this song that just really took my breath away so by a nose um i'm giving it to estimated nice what about what about you so I was, I kind of had something similar going on in my head. So I also really liked the Jack Straw. That was very much up there for me. That was when I, when we listen to these shows now, I kind of naturally, as I'm hearing the songs, think about whether I would want and or need it on my playlist. Like, need it. Yeah. If it's like in my head now is like, you know, the birth ends and I'm like, do I need that song on my playlist? No, I don't need it. It's fine. <laughs> And then, well, do I want it on my playlist? Maybe. Okay, well, let's compare it to the next song. Good Lovin'. Nah, I don't really need that one on my playlist. It's a good version. Don't need it. Jed, I don't ever need Jed on my playlist. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think I have a Jed on my playlist, though, don't I? You do not have a Jed. You have a Jed as an honorable mention one time okay wait I mean, that, that's absurd in and of itself but yes okay so like that's as much love as jed's gonna get from me probably so that's all well and good no i'm hang on i'm sorry there was that I have, there there was the one from 1990 at rfk that you you really liked how they did jed into music never stopped but mm-hmm. the music never stopped you like significant i mean box of rain was your song from that show yeah but music never stopped. Music never stopped. Got your like honorable your, set, your silver medal. Yeah. yeah. So this one, Jack Straw was the first one that took the mantle for me. And then as I kept going through, I was like, okay, Terrapin was really good, but it's not quite good enough to unseat it. Plane was really good, but just falls short. Kind of like you. It's like, ah, it's good, but I didn't like it all the way as much as I liked the Jack Straw. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the estimated, that's when pretty much every song from that point on, I had to like have that moment. Each of the next three songs, estimated, other one, and Warfrat, I had like a, a a quiet moment of reflection with myself of like, does this exceed the Jack Straw? Where I came out was as a suite of songs. Yes, I think that my favorite part of this show is as I said, estimated through around and around like that chunk of music is just like the, so in this box set, the last show seven, eight 78 at red rocks is like a beloved show. I I think that it's probably for a lot of people, they would say it's their favorite show of 78. I think that what they're doing in this window of four songs is largely as interesting as what they're doing at that show and sounds pretty much just as good. So that's my favorite part of the show, but for this exercise that you've created, which I love, the imaginary playlist one, I'm taking Jack Straw. Because as a standalone song, I think that that's the one that is best for my playlist. So I'm, I'm taking Jack Straw from Wichita. Nice. Very okay. long explanation of it, but that's that's No, it's a peek behind the curtain of what goes on in our brains as we as we do this. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's all for us, really. Uh, we're going to say ta-ta for now, but... I hope that you guys have a lovely, lovely summer while we're while we're not putting out episodes. We'll still be active on Twitter at Working Man's Pod. We will still be posting things on Instagram, maybe a photo together at the show that we're gonna be at. Maybe some photos of the independent shows that we're going to. We posted yes. one in Cincinnati 
of uh, that that beautiful venue. And um, Dave, I hope you'll post one of SPAC because that seems like a really cool place to see Dead & Co. Easy enough homework assignment. I think I can do it. Yeah. So anything else for the people, Dave, before we before we head out? If you have suggestions for us, shows that are near and dear to your heart that you'd like to hear, you can. if you don't have social media, you can email us at workingmanspod at gmail.com. If you do or do not like the term podhead, let us know. Yes, please do. And actually, because that's a great point, one small additional note on that. We have a couple shows upcoming that we're definitely going to talk about. Like I said, Dave's Picks. When there's a Grateful Dead new live release, we're going to talk about it. And we would be completely remiss not to talk about the Sunshine Daydream Veneta, Oregon show from late August of 72, the 50th year anniversary of that's coming up. So we'll talk about that. But for the fall, we don't have a ton of shows planned. And I, I'm i a big believer that there are some shows, songs, things that are like well-suited for the fall and well-suited for the winter and well-suited for the summer. If there are some shows that you listen to and you're like, this is a just a fall Grateful Dead show, let us know. We'd love to talk about it during the fall and we'd love to listen to it during the fall. You know, we're kind of all over the place with the shows that we talk about when. A lot of them we do around the anniversary, but a lot of them we don't. And so if you have one that you think is, well, this show was played in March, but it sounds like a fall show, give us a shout. Let us know. Yeah. yeah. And you, you made this point last time talking about, or two times ago, talking about the 91 show. Some of our some of what has become our favorite Grateful Dead shows. For example, the September 10th, 1991 show. Hey, go check out that episode. Like these shows that we know nothing about where we just Google like random shows from year that end up, we fall in love with them. So if you think like, well, I don't know if they're going to like this show or not, just let us know. The odds are we're going to love it. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, we're pretty easy sells, honestly. We're in this for like number one, fun. And number two, as a secondary matter, to put out like fun and positive Grateful Dead content, we're probably not going to be the harshest critics, <laughs> to be honest. If there's a show that's like a consensus, terrible Grateful Dead show, we're probably maybe down the road we would talk about it. But at least in this beginning run, there are hundreds of great shows for us to talk about and we'd love yeah. to talk about them. So yeah, if there's one that you really like that's near and dear to your heart, let us know. We've already talked about a few of those um, on this show from yeah. uh, at least one fan submitted show that we, we really liked from 1985. And one more shout out to Devin Murphy who submitted that to us. I was thinking about that show a lot when I was at that venue at Riverbend. And I was also thinking about Howard, what he said about how cool it was to watch like the tugboats drive by in the background. Mm-hmm. Someone at that show told me that if you own a boat, you can just take your boat and like moor it in the river behind the, uh, moor it isn't the right term, but anchor it in the river behind the venue and just listen to the music, which is awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. It almost makes me want to be onto Cincinnati again to go buy a boat. <laughs> <laughs> onto the big river. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think on that note, we've taken up enough time, so we should, um, we should do the right thing and bid you good night. Be the best and I'll bid you good night. Good night. Good night. And I'll bid you good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.